For the Pacifica Radio Network and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schott. I really wanted to just reassure myself. I, w- I, I wished more than anything I could go back to that, um, you know, young 40-something-year-old woman and tell her it was going to be okay, you know, to press on. Um, and that was something I wrote in the introduction was a little anecdote from my last novel, The Invention of Wings, where my two main, two of my main characters are out there in the world. Um, they're, they're struggling mightily, you know, to, to call for women to have a voice and to be able to speak publicly in the world. And um, they're getting such huge backlash from this. I mean, they're being hung in effigy. I mean, I should mention this is the 19th century. But nevertheless, I mean, it was a time of just struggling to have the right to voice themselves in the world as women, and they were meeting a a concrete wall. And I had another character, a historical figure, Lucretia Mott, send them a message, and the message was only four words, and I have often said they're my favorite four words in my novel, Press On My Sisters. Today I speak with Sue Monk Kidd. She is the author of several novels, including The Secret Life of Bees, The Mermaid Chair, and The Invention of Wings. Before the novels was the story of Sue Monk Kidd's own journey, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, a woman's journey from Christian tradition to the sacred feminine. The 20th anniversary edition of The Dance of the Dissident Daughter has just been released. Sue Monk Kidd is with me to talk about the ongoing dance for a new generation of dissident daughters. Welcome to Progressive Spirit. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, it was this book, uh, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, that made uh, your career in fiction possible. Uh, This is a discovery of the sacred feminine. Can you talk a little bit about how that journey uh, is in your other novels? I think the main thing about The Dance of the Dissident Daughter and its connection to my later work in fiction has to do with, I'm going to call it a liberating effect. Mm -hmm. It sort of freed me to explore um, not just my imagination, but women's stories. And and then what happened was that um, I discovered that there were so many stories in me about women and their journeys that I wanted to write about, especially women um, finding their voice, finding their courage, um, coming into some sort of sense of belonging to themselves or um, their own real sense of independence. And so when I wrote The Secret Life of Bees, um, which was my first novel, I was really writing about a girl um, who goes on a quest for, her, for a place of belonging in the world, and she finds it in a community of women. Um, with a feminine icon. And this, of course, was reflective of a lot of my experience in the dance of the dissident daughter, which had to do with the importance of, of women and sisterhood and finding a, a place, a safe place where we could tell our stories. Um, and the importance of feminine iconography. My second novel was about a married woman who was searching for a way to really belong to herself, to come home to herself and find her own inner authority. 
And then finally, in my last novel, I was writing um, another, I think, classic feminine journey, which is about women uh, trying to find their freedom in order, whether it's internal or external freedom, in order to voice themselves in the world or find their daring. So, you know, you're right. So much of my fiction really welled out of the experiences that I wrote about in The Dance of the Dissident Daughter. You know, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter has has this mythic quality about it, even though it's nonfiction. But it, it is a really a quest. I mean, the movements, even the title sections, Awakening, Initiation, Grounding, Dance, Empowerment, uh, the titles of the major headings of the book. Is there a sense for you in which you had to create or rediscover the woman's quest, uh, you know, the hero's quest, the male quest is all through literature and popular media. Um, but I wonder if you could talk about the quest itself and, and its archetypes and, and movements for women. Well, yes. Um, of course, I, I, like a lot of writers, studied Joseph Campbell's The Hero Quest. And what I discovered was that it didn't exactly fit a woman's journey. I mean, there's a lot of archetypal movements in it that you can identify with as a woman that will, um, I think, be similar. But ultimately, um, it, is, it, it, it felt very different for me. Um, and so I was really, I think for most classic women's journeys, um, are largely about trying to um, separate ourselves from a certain world we're in, and it's often a wounded world, and then take a journey. Um, you know, I, I'm remembering John Gardner, who was a late novelist, who said there are only two kinds of plots in American fiction. Um, someone goes on a trip or a stranger comes to town. Well, in women's classic um, kind of archetypal journeys, they always go on a trip. And my characters are doing that, always leaving home, leaving behind a world, crossing a threshold, and often not necessarily returning. Um, in Campbell's mythology, the hero always returns back home as a hero. But in women's journeys, I've often found they have to keep going, and they find their allies along the way. But it's often about healing and finding voice in women's fiction and in those kinds of mythic journeys. And that wound, of course, is the wound of patriarchy that uh, is the context or the subtext or the foretext of, of all of uh, this journey, isn't it? I think largely, yes, it is. Um, there's a descent involved in that for women, uh, a descent journey. Um, and it has to do with the fact of, you know, women's uh, history, women's struggles, women's, the valuing of women, so many things. I mean, we won't even need to recount all the things that went in on patriarchy, and there's thousands of years of, of, of history and force there that inter women internalize. And, you know, I think a journey particularly is for women is going to be important to move out of that place. And then often you do go through a long descent before you can kind of find your way. And when you said descent, you mean uh, not only dis, D-I-S-S-E-N-T, but also in a sense D-E-S-C-E-N-T. <laughs> yeah, very good. Um, I think both of those apply. There, You know, the title of my book, I, I named it The Dance of the Dissident Daughter because uh -huh. there is a certain level of dissidence that you have to 
take up in order to to take this kind of journey. But descent as well, the opposite of ascent, is involved. And and by that I don't mean a, a spiraling into some sort of dark you know, depressed place, although it, it can actually involve that. I, I have known of those kinds of experiences. But I mean in the sense that when we leave a place that is very familiar, let's say the patriarchal world, let's say the patriarchy within the church or within religion or culturally, or when we begin to step away from that and discover what we believe as women and discover our own authority and value as women, um, there is a period of time that's very disconcerting, you know, where you're questioning, there's some confusion, there's some back and forth, there's, it's a, it, it feels like the ground is moving under your feet, and that's what I mean by that term. Yeah, there's a great deal of of pain expressed in your book, pain, Uh angst, anger, as you realize how oppressive and violent patriarchy has been, uh, particularly for you and your life and your daughter's life, uh, growing up a Baptist in Georgia. Uh, Of course, with that liberation through the sacred feminine, can you talk a little bit about the effects that Dance of the Dissident Daughter has had uh, in your readers? Well, it has been fascinating for me to um, hear from readers for the last 20 years with this book. And I think the real surprise for me is that, you know, it has, it's still around after 20 years and it's finding new generations of readers. That's been remarkable for me. Um, and when I first heard from readers um, 20 years ago, this book was so controversial for so many people because it questioned a lot of things that were so ingrained in us. Um, uh, you know, I try to write really honestly about my own awakening and trying to integrate feminism and the feminine into our religious Christian story. Um, and really, I think it caused a lot of people to um, be concerned about me. <laughs> Frankly, you know, I got letters of concern or letters of anger from people. Um, but I, but the preponderance of mail I received and feedback and response I received was overwhelmingly positive from uh, women who and and men as well um, who responded to the to the story in the book, and it. And basically what I heard was you gave language to something I was experiencing or you kind of opened up with your story a way for me to find the courage to take my own story. Um, And that is what I had most hoped. And I, I have great faith in storytelling and the ability of a story to embolden people and um, give us the you know, a way to recognize something that was in us all along. And um, I heard a lot of that when I was writing, uh, when I was, uh, when the book was published, rather. So um, there's been the gamut, I guess you could say, from um, a controversial kind of backlash initially about the book to um, just extraordinary stories and outreach to me about how this book has been powerful or important to them, which um, I'm incredibly grateful for. 
If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, my guest is Sue Monk Kidd, uh, the author of The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, A Woman's Journey from Christian Tradition to the Sacred Feminine. This is the 20th anniversary edition. And it's uh, in these past 20 years, um, uh, you wrote in the introduction uh, to the 20th anniversary edition that you hadn't uh, read it uh, since uh, since then until just recently. Can you talk a little bit about what you felt and thought as you read yourself from 20 years back? Yeah, crazy that I hadn't read it since, but I had read pieces and passages and that kind of thing. But to really sit down 20 years later um, with three grandchildren later, you know, and sit Mm. down and read this book in one sitting, start to finish, um, was, was amazing for me because I could identify with that self that I had been when I first wrote all of these words. Um, but what struck me most forcibly, I think, was um, how close I came to not taking this journey at all. I remember reading this line that I wrote, um, how I felt like the bottom had just fallen out of my womanhood. I mean, everything was just upended for me as I entered this journey. I came from a very religious background, a pro- kind of mainstream Protestant background, um, and church was such a huge part of my life, and I had never questioned anything about any of it. And so I experienced a lot of anger, a lot of pain, a, a, a lot of concern about where I was going and the unknown ahead of me and what this all meant. And, and the bottom did kind of fall out of my womanhood. And when I read this line 20 years later, I really wanted to just reassure myself. I, w- I, I wished more than anything I could go back to that, um, you know, young 40-something-year-old woman and tell her it was going to be okay, you know, to press on. Um, and that was something I wrote in the introduction was a little anecdote from my last novel, The Invention of Wings, where my two main, two of my main characters are out there in the world. Um, they're they're struggling mightily, you know, to to call for women to have a voice and to be able to speak publicly in the world. And um, they're getting such huge backlash from this. I mean, they're being hung in effigy. I mean, I should mention this is the 19th century, but nevertheless, I mean, it was a time of just struggling to have the right to voice themselves in the world as women, and they were meeting a, a concrete wall. And I had another character, a historical figure, Lucretia Mott, send them a message, and the message was only four words, and I have often said they're my favorite four words in my novel, Press On My Sisters. And I think I wanted to tell my characters that more than anything And I wanted to say that to myself, you know, at the beginning of that journey, just press on, press on, it's worth it, because I have such a strong sense now of where I am and where I've come from that initial um, embarking on this journey, that it is so worth the, the struggle, and it's not all struggle, it's a portion of the journey that you go through, but it is well worth it. You talk about finding the voice. And and certainly, um, if there's a, perhaps a hideous verse uh, throughout the Bible is that uh, 
passage that you quoted in your book, too, from Timothy about women need to keep silence. How much damage has that verse done? <laughs> well, probably inestimable. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think um, we try to interpret that in all kinds of ways, but it, it, it hits you right in the heart if you're a woman. There are pockets of of Christianity, it seems to me, that um, still operate under this idea of a holy misogyny, and I'm using the words of April DeConnick. It's that means simply that it is a sexism mandated by Scripture or by some divine decree, um, and and we haven't totally overcome that. And I have told, you know, some of my friends even last week we were discussing some of this, and I said, you know, I really worry that religion is going to be the last bastion of patriarchy. <laughs> you know, it should be the first to go, uh, to be confronted. But women are waking up, and they're, they're voicing themselves, and they're changing structures from within, and they're claiming this... Um, authority to define religion and to integrate the feminine imagery into even conceptions of the divine, and they're finding ways to, um, to transform all of this. And I think that is going to be the future, but, you know, it's like um, a long journey, and I still worry at times that we just move very slowly in this regard, and there's often a lot of backlash around it. Yeah, holy misogyny. That's a powerful phrase right there. Uh, you know, I was going to ask you about that as in your own journey as you moved away from Christianity, uh, from Baptist to Episcopal to out of the tradition itself. Uh, what, what is your—I was going to ask you what you observe now, but what has your relationship been uh, with this tradition, and, and have— what have we seen uh, in terms of of patriarchy, and, and has it been resisted within the Church in, in significant ways? Um, my experience, you actually summed it up very succinctly. Yeah, I, I grew up as a Southern Baptist in the South, where tradition is revered. I had to um, break from that. I had to break from, you know, my family's religion. And then I became Episcopalian, and I found a lot of freedom in that, and yet patriarchy followed me there, too. Um, I became involved in trying to transform things from within. This is why I wrote this book. Um, I wanted it. I wanted to put my story out there um, as, as a way to support other women who were experiencing this, and maybe, like, light a little flicker of something that might help them to come to themselves in, in their own experience of church. But largely, um, after that, I began to understand that I had to step outside of this tradition. And I maintain a what I feel like is a very meaningful connection to the deep song within Christianity, which I actually love very much. Um, and, and it's hard to explain what that deep song is, but I think of it as the real heart of Christianity without the ecclesiastical part of it, without the you shoulds and you ought tos. And I think of it as 
the life of Jesus, which is, which I think is an extraordinary example for us, and some of the really persistent movement toward justice and compassion, which are very important to me. But I'm not involved in the tradition, really, in a, and I go to church every Sunday since, any longer. Um, and I have found that my spirituality has expanded in surprising ways for me. There are women I respect so enormously who are clergy within Christianity, who um, are, are just leaders within Christianity, or just women who are, shall we say, in the pew, or however you describe that, um, who are standing firm for their journey to the sacred feminine, and they're trying to make a difference. And I, I respect that. I also respect those women who have felt like they need to step outside of it because they can't um, feel valued within it, or they feel as if they are participating in something that um, demeans them in some way. So I, I'm sort of wanting to include all of these women as doing their part wherever they are in all of this. Sue Monk Kidd, my guest on Progressive Spirit, author of The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, A Woman's Journey from Christian Tradition to the Sacred Feminine. This is the 20th anniversary edition. What, what is the movement now for young women uh, in discovering their spirituality and their strength now that we see the rise of the nuns uh, in terms of church here in the Pacific Northwest for, for sure? Uh, what do you see the variety of possibility being with uh, perhaps sacred feminine communities? Um, I think that we're going to find women creating new structures within old structures. I think that the nuns are, have certainly done that, and they bring this kind of vibrant, um, well, a certain strand of nuns and have brought a real vital kind of energy into it again. Um, I think as women, young women, um, integrate and make normal a feminine, feminist experience, whether they want to call it feminist or not, um, that we're going to, we're going to see that spill over into their efforts with religion. Um, I mean, I, I see that and hear about that a lot, of, of, of the normalization of feminism within religion. This is hopeful to me, and that um, women continuing to tell their stories, and, and I think um, find one another, find these communities together. We'll, we'll see more of that, perhaps, um, as we go along, and it's becoming more mainstream now where it used to be um, such a scary kind of alternative thing to do. It's becoming more mainstream so that we aren't utterly shocked when so someone says, God, she, or God, our mother, or, uh, you know, or to speak of women um, creating symbol themselves, um, not just sitting in the pew receiving it, but actually being engaged in the meaning-making of religious experience. And it's coming. It's going to happen. Sumon Kidd, I have just one more question for you. Uh, almost anything we discuss today <laughs> is now colored by this election of, of Donald Trump. Uh, what do you make uh, of, of this misogyny of him, Trump himself, and, and that his election has uncovered. Uh, what do you hear from women and perhaps awakened men uh, about uh, this new social and political reality? 
Um, well, I should start by saying that I live in Florida. So I live in one of these so-called battleground states where it's very, you know, very close kind of election and very contentious and, and very divided. Um, I am, I would think, obviously, I was a Hillary Clinton supporter, and I, after the election, I felt an almost crushing kind of, um, I mean, I felt devastated by this whole thing. And what I discovered in talking to other women um, is that they had a similar experience. My daughter was rather inconsolable. My friend's daughter was inconsolable. Um, and I had the unique experience. The morning after the election, I flew to Asheville, North Carolina, to meet my three best girlfriends. We have this, um, we call it our annual girlfriend vacation, and we've been doing this for 12 years, and it just so happened to fall the day after the election. We thought we were going to have a celebration about our first female president. Um, and, of course, it turned out radically different from that. And so what we had was um, a kind of grieving together, and, and it was, a, in a way, a, a real blessing that we could be together and we could weep together and we could try to make sense of things together and we could try to um, move forward. And my sense, I hope I'm right on this, but my sense is that it is having a kind of mobilizing effect. I hope it isn't short-lived. I hope it's genuine and authentic. But it seems to be rooted in something quite deep and strong. It's a galvanizing thing. It's a, wait a minute, we've got to do something. And people are saying, what can I do? And that's what my friends were saying. They were saying, what can we do now? We must do something. We must act. And, you know, one of my friends is going to be volunteering for Planned Parenthood as a result of this election. And each of us were trying to find our way. And I don't think this is an isolated thing. I think this is going to happen um, in many ways across the country as women, as the majority of women in this country come to terms with what has happened. Sue Monk-Kidd has been my guest on Progressive Spirit. She's the author of The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, A Woman's Journey from Christian Tradition to the Sacred Feminine. This is the 20th anniversary edition, and one thing we can do to galvanize is uh, read this book again or pass it on to a new generation. Uh, And thank you so much for this book and for spending time with me today. Well, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. For links to podcasts, go to progressivespirit.net. Each week, a new show with an exciting author, scholar, or activist talking about things that matter, spirituality and social justice. From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, and for the Pacifica Radio Network, I'm John Shuck. Be welcome.